So since we did just start uh, just a little tiny series on the Holy Spirit uh, last week, um, I might go a little bit faster through some of these things, but not everybody has heard this. So um, we're going to look first at the personhood of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Where does the name Holy Spirit come from? Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, uh, Ruach Kodesh and various uh, variations of that the spirit who is holy and we said this last week on uh, during our uh, worship service but um, sometimes you don't have the kodesh part you don't have the the holiness part uh, you just have the spirit and so you have uh, the context tells you whether this is speaking of same word for wind for breath um, so is it the holy spirit or is it the wind or the breath we talked about that last week uh, the context tells you uh, in uh, the New Testament, Hagias Panuma, um, the the set apart, the sanctified, the Holy Spirit. So, uh, and again, in the New Testament, uh, Panuma also means wind or breath. And so you have the same issue as you have in the Old Testament. And so, uh, as we mentioned last week, when the Lord Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that the Spirit of God is like the wind... Um, that was not only a brilliant uh, illustration, it was a play on words. It, he was saying the wind is like the wind, the spirit is like the spirit. And so uh, it was a brilliant uh, way to explain the spirit of God. The fact that he is holy speaks of his deity. It speaks of the fact that he is set apart, that he is separate, that he is different. The fact that he is spirit, again, has the connotations of breath, wind, power, uh, energy, activity. Um, the fact that his spirit speaks of his life-giving creative, creative activity. We talked about that last week, that the spirit gives life. And so, just to be clear, because most people who even have heard of the Holy Spirit do not view the Holy Spirit as a person. They view the Holy Spirit as more of a force of some sort. Um, that is a uh, classic dogma, by the way, for Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, for Mormons. Um, but Jehovah's Witnesses in particular work really hard to get around um, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Because if the Holy Spirit is God, then you have two out of three in the Trinity that are God. Now, you, now the dominoes fall. Now Christ is God, and that messes up their whole system. So they have to uh, do some uh, interesting gymnastics with the Bible to get around the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person. So how do we know he's a person? Well, there's various ways we can know this. He has the characteristics of a person. He has personality. And, and I just made a little list here. He has life. 2 Corinthians 3, 3, and, and you show that you are a, a letter from Christ delivered by us, not written with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. The Spirit of the living God. He has life in himself. He has intelligence and wisdom. Isaiah 40, verse 13, who has measured the Spirit of God or what man shows him his counsel. So the Spirit of God has counsel. He has intelligence. He has wisdom. Of course, then that means he has knowledge. 1 Corinthians two eleven. for who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So how much knowledge does the Spirit of God have? If he comprehends all the thoughts of God the Father, then he has all the same knowledge of, as God the Father. If he has the same knowledge as God the Father, then he is all-knowing. If he is all-knowing, then he is what? He is God. That's, a, that's called a syllogism, where you proceed through a logical argument to get to that one singular conclusion. 
He has freedom and purpose. 1 Corinthians 12, 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. This is speaking of spiritual gifts. It is the Spirit who apportions those gifts. And of course, he has love. Romans fifteen thirty. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. So, he can't be a force because he has life, intelligence, wisdom, knowledge, freedom, purpose, love. That's not something impersonal. That is a person. Not only does he have characteristics of personality, he has actions of personality. And again, uh, just a short list here. The actions of a personality. He speaks. Acts 8.29, the Spirit said to Philip. He helps and intercedes. Romans 8.26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He teaches us. 1 Corinthians 2.13, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. This is why I love preaching, by the way, because you teach any other subject, and some of you are teachers, um, but I get to claim something that you don't. When you're teaching the Pythagorean theorem uh, in a classroom, the Spirit of God is not swooping in to help your students understand that. That when I preach the Word of God, the Spirit of God helps and teaches you and teaches you to become more like Christ. And I've said this before, it is the greatest thing in the world. It's like having a, a bow with 300 arrows in it and I let them go and the Spirit of God takes over and they hit their targets every time. So he teaches, that's what the personality does. He testifies. John fifteen twenty six. when the helper comes whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me How is it that a person comes to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is the living God and I must bow before him because the Spirit has testified to that fact? He can be resisted. Acts 7.51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. He can be lied to. Acts 5.4 and Acts 5.9 tell us the story of Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Holy Spirit, and earlier it says lying to God. So it's a, it's a clear evidence of the deity of the Holy Spirit. He can be grieved. Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Um, just a slight side note on that. That verse is often taken out of context, and it, uh, it is used in a nice way. To say, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by all these things you do. But the context is very specific that we grieve the Holy Spirit with gossip and slander. That's how you grieve the Holy Spirit. Why is that? Because you're denigrating the body of Christ that, is, that belongs to Christ. And so that's the specific context there. He can be grieved. He can be blasphemed. Matthew twelve thirty one. Jesus said, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And he can be insulted and outraged. We don't, we don't think of the Spirit of God as being outraged very often. We sort of think, and this is wrong thinking, we think of the Spirit of God as sort of the softer version of God. That's not the case. He's fully God. Hebrews 10.29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? So, 
Does he do the things that are personal? He speaks, he helps, he intercedes, he teaches, he testifies. He can be resisted, lied to, grieved, blasphemed, insulted, and outraged. So he is clearly doing the things of a person. But can you have a relationship with him? There's a, there, there's a whole school of thought within Christendom that says that your relationship is with God the Father through the Son by means of the Spirit, but you, we sort of pass by the Spirit. Do you have a relationship with Him? Well, He has personal relationships. He's identified as a person. John 14, through, verses, uh, 14, 15, and 16, He is a helper. He's a teacher. He's a reminder. He testifies. Jesus will send him. He will guide. He will speak. In John 14, 15, and 16 is all about the Holy Spirit, the power, the, the, the person, not an inanimate object or an inanimate power. He is somebody with whom you can have a relationship. He's distinguished from his power. He's not merely power. He's distinguished from his power. Luke 4, 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. And the report about him went throughout all the surrounding country. So it's not just he, that he is power. He is distinguished from his power because he's a person. He's associated equally with the Father and the Son. Probably half of you have this memorized Jesus said in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He is part of the Trinity providing for the church. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The koinonia, the the inner uh, communion that comes from the Spirit of God. And he's linked directly with divine names. Matthew 10, 20. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. So there you have the spirit identified with the father. Acts 16, 7. When they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Now you have the spirit associated with Christ. In Romans 8, 9. You who, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So you have the Spirit associated with Christ again. And this is, this is why it's so, so poignant that Jesus said in the upper room, he said, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will return to you. That is wrongly taken as either the, uh, Jesus coming back to them right after the resurrection or his return someday. He said, I won't leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. What did he mean? Well, the context is that the Spirit of God is going to come, the Spirit of Christ. And so, is Jesus physically on the throne next to God right now? Yes, but he's omniscient, omnipresent, everywhere present, and the Spirit of Christ is with you. The Spirit of Christ indwells you. And so, that's a, that's a beautiful thing. So, he has personal relationships. So, can you have a relationship with the Spirit? Uh, if you don't, you're not saved. You do have a relationship with the Spirit, and it's wonderful. So how would we, so we, we say he's a person. We get that. How would we go about identifying him more specifically as God, though? Well, he has divine attributes, and we could go through all of them. We'll just do a few. He is eternal. He has eternality. 
Hebrews 9.14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The spirit is eternal. He is omnipresent. He's everywhere present. Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit or flee from your presence? That's a great thought. He is omniscient, all-knowing. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And we've already talked about that briefly. He's all-powerful. Luke 1, 20, 135, rather, the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, did you catch that? Jesus, as human, is holy because it is the Holy Spirit who conceived him in his mother's womb. That is not the beginning of the existence of the Son of God. That is the beginning of the human uh, nature of the Son of God. And so he's called holy because the Holy Spirit came upon Mary. Didn't make her holy, by the way. Just made her son holy. Just so we're clear on that. He has the attribute of truth. John 14, 17, Jesus calls him the spirit of truth. Now, why is that important? Because there is uh, one person who is truth, and that is God. Jesus claimed to be truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. But now the spirit is said to be the spirit of truth as well. And so he's equal to Christ, equal to the Father. And of course, the obvious one, uh, he is holy. Now, I wouldn't call that an attribute. I don't hold to the idea that holiness is an attribute of God. Holiness is all of the attributes of God in one uh, big lump together. But the holiness of the Holy Spirit is used as a title for him. Obviously, the Holy Spirit. But it's also a descriptor that he is set apart. He is different. He is other. And I put it this way. All of the attributes of God is what makes holiness. And so... Um, he is clearly holy as that is his title. How else would we know that he is God? Well, he's identified with Yahweh. He's identified with and as the one true living God. I just put a couple of references up here and I'll, I'll read them to you here. Isaiah 6, 9. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Now, hang on to that in your brain. Acts 28, 25, and 26. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. In other words, in Isaiah, it is clearly Yahweh speaking. And in Acts 28, Paul says it was the Holy Spirit speaking. What is the syllogism? If Yahweh speaks and the Holy Spirit said the same thing, then the Holy Spirit is Yahweh. He is God. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31, this classic um, statement of the new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Now, again, we confer this with Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. So Jeremiah 31 declares the Lord who's speaking, Yahweh. Hebrews 10 says that was the Holy Spirit speaking. So the Holy Spirit, Yahweh, we, they're identified together. What's the, what's the uh, implication if the Holy Spirit isn't God? If the Holy Spirit isn't God, our whole system of salvation falls apart. It crumbles. Because all the ministry of the Spirit, a big part of the ministry of the Spirit is making you like Christ and making certain you get to heaven. And we'll talk about that more later this morning. But if the Holy Spirit isn't God, then God isn't God. Why would we say this? What is the, what is the one attribute of God that the Bible just uses the word is to describe him? God is what? Love. How can God be love if before he created mankind, there was no one to love. But for all eternity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit has been in a love relationship. That's why there's no, fault, no false God can be characterized as loving, even if you, even if you believe in, in it. Can't be characterized as loving. So the Holy Spirit is God. There's another implication. The Holy Spirit uh, as, as God <clears throat> there is again a school of thought within Christianity that says uh, some even just say you should not pray to the Holy Spirit and the evidence they give is that there are no examples of prayer to the Holy Spirit in the Bible okay well let's think about that the word Trinity is not in the Bible the word Bible is not in the Bible but those are clear concepts from Scripture why would we not pray to the one who is called our comforter, our helper, our counselor. So what are you going to do? Are you going to say, now, Father, in Jesus' name, would you do me a favor? Would you ask the Holy Spirit to comfort me right now? That's kind of silly, isn't it? Uh, one of my favorite preacher, preachers from years ago, a guy named Stuart Briscoe, he was preaching at a conference, and he uh, came up, or somebody came up to him and, and said, uh, you know, you shouldn't pray to the Spirit. And his answer was, I don't know, I've known them for a really long time. So is there an example of praying to the Spirit? No. Are there examples of praying to Christ? Yes. Acts chapter 1, a couple of other places in Acts. So if you can pray to the Father, if you can pray to the Son, um, isn't it reasonable to say you can pray to the Spirit? A- absolutely. Now, can you take that too far? Yes. Charismatic bad theology says now creates a bad theology that the Spirit of God is the head of the Trinity, essentially is what they say. So uh, if you're going to balance things out, God taught us, or God the Son taught us to pray to the Father. We pray to the Father in the name of Christ, but don't you want to speak to your Savior? 
Of course we do. And don't you want to speak to the one that is getting you through this life every single day? The Spirit of God. So, the implications of not believing the deity of, of the Holy Spirit are profound. And I would say, for our crowd here in our uh, circle, we might say in our head, oh, the Holy Spirit is God. But do you ignore him? Do you speak to him? Do you consider his ministry in your life? I, I think that's where we get off track, is that we, he is the ignored member of the Trinity. And so we, we don't want to be guilty of that. We're very Trinitarian. We want to be. Well, what did the Spirit do in the Old Testament? We talked about this some last week, so I'm not going to belabor the point. In creation, the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters, giving life, giving energy. In Revelation, David's very last oracle in 2 Samuel 23, 2, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God is the one who has given all the prophecies of Christ. Uh, 2 Peter 1, 21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit in the Old Testament has given us um, our written word, gave us the prophetic word. What did he do with people in the Old Testament? Probably the primary way we could describe the uh, ministry of the Holy Spirit is that he equipped people for specific tasks. He equipped people for specific tasks. And I gave you a list of, of um, examples there. Joseph, Genesis forty one thirty eight. Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Specifically equipped. The tabernacle artisans, uh, I, I mentioned this last week, um, uh, Bezalel, was empowered by the Spirit to design a beautiful tabernacle and to do all those things well. The elders of Israel, the judges, uh, numerous times. I give you four different examples in judges last week. Uh, there's a couple of them up there. Uh, Samson, of course, is one of them. Uh, the prophets, Numbers 24, Ezekiel 2. Saul, even, specially enabled by the Spirit. And, in fact, Saul is uh, our evidence that the enabling of the Spirit was not salvific in nature. It wasn't a salvation act. Uh, it wasn't the indwelling of the Spirit. It was specific empowering. So it didn't mean that uh, he was regenerated. Now, uh, we address this every time we can. First um, Samuel sixteen thirteen. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that is David, in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that, that day forward. Is that an act of salvation? Not technically, no. What that was, the anointing of David was the uh, confirmation by the prophet Samuel that this is the king chosen by God. When the spirit rushes upon David, it is confirmation that the spirit of God is going to enable him to be the king of Israel. So, our, if, you're, if our theology is good, we understand in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, once you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, he will never be taken from you. So why then did David pray in Psalm 51, 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me? He's not saying, please don't let me lose my salvation. What he's saying is, don't let me lose the empowerment of the Spirit of God to be an effective king of Israel. Now, why would he pray that? Because he witnessed it happening to Saul, his father-in-law. And so that would be a clear prayer for him. Is there, a, um, is there an equivalent for the Christian? Sort of. The equivalent for the Christian is don't take your blessing 
on my life away from me because I'm in rebellious sin. Please forgive me. Um, This is why we ask for forgiveness and we come with a clean and a humble heart to the Lord's table. The Lord's table is important for the church because it's a reset. We continually reset because you ought to be scared to take the, the cup and to take the bread in a state of unrepentance or rebellion. And so it resets us. Does that mean that we could lose our salvation? No. Uh, it just means that we would not be in, in God's favor. So we just want to be clear about that. That is the only uh, psalm I don't like to sing in church because you don't have a chance to explain it. You know, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And people, what? I didn't know that could happen. Um, so we don't want to confuse people unless we have a chance to explain it. What else did the Holy Spirit do? I spent a long time on this last week, so I won't belabor this point. But he regenerates sinners in the Old Testament. How do we know this? Well, it's based on the results of the Spirit's work. There's no word in the Old Testament for regeneration. There's no word for being born again. We don't make the argument that Old Testament regeneration is exactly the same as the New Testament. If that were the case, then Pentecost isn't unique. But there is some sort of internal reality of change. There is a change in spirit because of the spirit. Now, we're always clear about this. Regeneration is not the same as indwelling. That's a separate issue. Um, The indwelling of the spirit is specific to Pentecost and forward. That is, the, uh, that is the characteristic of the church of Jesus Christ that's different from Israel. So we recognize that the work of the Spirit is progressive, but we don't deny his Old Testament activity. Moses commanded Israel to have a circumcised heart to be changed internally rather than just external obedience. And I gave you this proof last week, but there is proof that the Old Testament, um, under the Old Testament saint was regenerate was changed because Jesus in John chapter 3 speaking to Nicodemus explained that you must be born again and he he said it's baffling to me and this is my translation is baffling to me you're the teacher of Israel the teacher in Greek like the premier guy you're the lead teacher of all of Israel you're the you're the expert of the expert of the experts you're the theologian that the other theologians come to and Jesus said You're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Now, why is that important? There was no New Testament revelation yet, yet Jesus expected Nicodemus to have an understanding of the new birth of regeneration. And so, yes, he regenerated sinners. Um, I, I grew up being taught the opposite, being taught that people in the Old Testament did the best they could and hopefully they were doing pretty well the moment they died. That terrified me. It also implies that you get saved differently in the New Testament than you did in the Old, which, of course, is is not true. Everyone is saved by faith. And so how do we have faith? Faith is a gift from God, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It always has been and always will be. And so how did Abraham, for example, have faith? Genesis 15, 6. He had faith because God changed his heart. And who changed his heart? The Holy Spirit did. Just a couple of examples of regeneration in the Old Testament. Naaman, 2 Kings 5, 15 through 17. He's the commander of the army of Syria. He's healed of leprosy by Elisha. And he demonstrated a confession of faith and a repentant change of behavior. That's the work of the Spirit. Ruth, 
She eagerly desired to serve the God of Israel, Ruth 1.16. And Naomi confirmed that Ruth had taken refuge under the wings of the Lord. This is the work of the Spirit. You have uh, Rahab in the book of Joshua. You have the Ninevites in Jonah. You have the sailors to Tarshish in the book of Jonah. They all turn to God. My favorite example in the Old Testament, though, is King Manasseh. King Manasseh goes down in history as basically the worst king ever. He was wicked, and he was wicked for decades and decades. And yet, what happened at the end of his life? Second Chronicles 33, beginning of verse 12. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. What do we know from the New Testament? We know from the New Testament that to know that Yahweh is God and to worship him in humility and repentance is a work of whom? Of the Spirit. And so will you see Manasseh like the worst king ever in heaven? Yes. You know why that's great? Because you'll see yourself the worst person ever in heaven. And so you guys can have some conversations. Hey, you know, uh, you uh, killed uh, like thousands of people. Well, yeah, but you yelled at your wife every day and you kept it a secret. And so you can compare sins and you can compare forgiveness. All the people in the Old Testament, why would Rahab, why, the Rahab, the prostitute living in a debauched city of Jericho, why would she say, please remember me and rescue me and my family? That's the work of the Spirit right there. So does he regenerate sinners? Yes, he did. And this helps us be very, very consistent. It helps us read the Old Testament. And when we read about men like Daniel and Ezekiel and uh, Elijah and Elisha and all of these godly men, and you say, well, how did they serve God? Same reason you do, because of the Spirit. And so that helps us relate to them. Just a couple of other ideas about this. Psalm fifty one seventeen. the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's only possible in a regenerated person that God doesn't despise hypocritical sacrifices and gifts. This is important because all sinners are at enmity with God. Romans 5, 8 says this. We're by nature children of wrath. Ephesians 2, 3 says this. We're in need of the Spirit's enabling to turn toward the true God. Let me put it to you this way. If you know your theology of pneumatology in the New Testament, you understand and you agree that regeneration precedes faith. That regeneration makes you able to have faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is very clear on this. You did not make an intellectual decision looking at your own sin, looking at the grace of God, weighing them out and saying, I decide to become a Christian. You didn't do that. And you understand that. So if regeneration didn't happen in the Old Testament, how did they come to faith? Well, the only answer is is that they had to hope that they came to the right conclusion. They had to hope that they figured it out. And that that's not hope, that's hopeless. And so that's not consistent at all. Mankind has been steeped in sin since the fall of Genesis 3, and no one has ever done good, no one has ever sought after God, All have turned aside. All have become worthless. And just in case you think, well, that's a New Testament concept. Yeah, that was Paul quoting the Old Testament. So it's always been the case. So the results of 
conversion. They at least argue for the cause of conversion, regeneration by the Holy Spirit. And so in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit operates in the background, working in the hearts of sinners, and in the foreground when special enabling is given. Now, we're going to start the, the, uh, the Spirit in the New Testament, but here's where the change happens. In the Old Testament, you're, you're digging through. I once dug a hole in my backyard about four feet deep because I was convinced there was gold. And I just dug and dug and dug, and I finally found this really cool little crystal, and I kept it for a year or two. That was all I got. But just to get that, I, I had to dig and dig and dig, and my mom didn't know that was happening. And when she discovered the tiger pit in our backyard, that wasn't a happy moment for me. But I dug and dug and dug to find this little bit. That's what we do in the, in the Old Testament. You dig and dig and dig, and you find these nuggets of truth about the Holy Spirit, and He's in the background. You get to the New Testament, you get to the book of Acts, and the presence of the Spirit of God explodes on the earth. Why is that? Because for the first time in all of history, the Spirit of God is indwelling every single person who believes in Christ. And so now you see, you know, the, the, the book of Acts technically is called the Acts of the Apostles. Probably even more accurately, it ought to be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And so now the Spirit just explodes on the scene. There is a, a newness to the Spirit's ministry. Jesus gave this promise in John 14, 16, and 17. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. So this is given, the Spirit is given directly from Jesus. He's the Spirit of truth. The world cannot receive Him. They don't know Him. But He also says, you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. It's not that the Old Testament saints weren't aware of the Spirit, but they didn't have the knowledge to define the Spirit of God in Trinitarian terms. Do you understand that you have a better understanding of the nature of God than, than the prophets in the Old Testament? You understand. Somebody can say, well, what's the nature of God? And you can say, well, it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. God the Son uh, was born of a virgin, and uh, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh. The Father is Yahweh. But the Spirit is not the Father. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Spirit. The Father is not the Son. An Old Testament saint would be going, oh, how do you know all that? Well, I read it in my Bible. My Bible ends at Malachi. Oh, I have the rest of this revelation. So the Old Testament saint knew the Spirit of God, but there wasn't that, that precision that we enjoy and we probably take for granted more than we should. Verse 17 of John 14, Jesus said, He dwells with you and will be in you. This is looking ahead to Pentecost. Then, of course, you have the Pentecost outpouring Jesus predicted the event in the upper room. He said in John sixteen seven. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. We also know that the Holy Spirit, he promises, would be the inspiration to the apostles. John fourteen twenty six. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Why do we have such precision in the epistles? Because, listen carefully, these are things Jesus taught the apostles and the Holy Spirit brought to their remembrance all of those things. This is the promise of a new revelation immediately to the apostles. 
the revelation of the new, of the new testament and then you have communion with Christ this is again the promise from Christ John 14:18 uh, other parts of John 14 John 16 Sinclair Ferguson wrote this about communion with Christ he said quote having the spirit is the equivalent indeed the very mode of having the incarnate obedient crucified, resurrected, and exalted Christ indwelling us so that we are united to him as he is united to the Father. It is in this sense that John sees the difference that Pentecost signals in the ministry of the Spirit. Now as the bond of union to God, the Spirit indwells all who believe as the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see uh, the Spirit of God promised at the ascension. Jesus said that he would send his Spirit and then Luke, uh, he identifies uh, the presence of the Spirit in Luke uh, as fire. We see Acts chapter 2, the promise fulfilled and what is the promise of the coming Spirit and what appears over the heads of the uh, apostles. You have the little tongues of fire, right? That's just a little sign that the Spirit has come. By the way, if you say, well, the book of Acts is normative for today, I've never seen anybody with a fire on top of their head. Uh, unless they're on YouTube and they're having lots of hits because they set themselves on fire by accident. It's never happened since. While we're on that topic, let me just show you something real quick. I didn't bring my Bible. I have to do this from memory. It's uh, in my office. Acts chapter 2. It says that they were gathered together and the Holy Spirit came. You hear the wind and the tongues of fire and they begin speaking in tongues. Acts chapter 2 uses a plural pronoun, they. What is the basic rule for pronouns? Pronouns have an antecedent. An antecedent means that they or he or she refers back to the last proper noun or the last specifically identified person or group of persons. Traditionally, Acts chapter 2 is taught as all the believers in Christ, the 120 gathered in the upper room and they're all speaking in tongues. They all have tongues of fire. Um, I've even, I remember being a kid coloring pages uh, in Sunday school about that. What is the antecedent to they? At the very end of Acts chapter one, remember there were no chapter divisions uh, originally. The antecedent is the apostles. It's not the whole group. It was the apostles who were the ones speaking in tongues, preaching the gospel in 15 different language in, languages in Acts 2. It was the apostles. So we want to be very clear about that, um, that, that they were the ones that this happened to. Peter then preached his sermon and everyone else, 3,000 of them listening, received the Holy Spirit as well. So I just wanted to point that out, uh, that if we want to be precise, we want to let uh, a literal, historical, and grammatical understanding of Scripture, the grammar dictates that it was the apostles, not the 120. Why does that matter? Because details matter, and we want to be as precise as we can. What about the Spirit and the New Covenant? Again, we're just introducing the Spirit in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 3 is a glorious chapter on the Spirit and the New Covenant ministry. And I just gave you some bullet points there about 2 Corinthians 3. The Spirit of God changes the hearts of believers. The Holy Spirit gives life to believers. The ministry of the Holy Spirit has more glory than the law. Now, how is that the case? Now, that's not a competition. Well, the Spirit of God is better than the law. There's more glory than the law. Why is that? Well, I'll tell you why. 
And some of you here are evidence of this because I have known you before you were saved and after. The evidence is that before you ever found certain commands in the Bible, the Spirit of God began ministering to you and you knew certain things were wrong and certain things were right. Why is that? Because the Spirit changed your heart. And then you read through your Bible and you go, oh, this is a command. I've been doing that anyway. Because the Spirit of God has done that. The Holy Spirit brings freedom. Why is there freedom in the Spirit? There's freedom in the Spirit because you are guaranteed to become more and more like Christ. You are guaranteed that you know in any given situation, the Holy Spirit can tell you what's right and what's wrong. You don't ever have to wring your hands going, I wonder what I'm supposed to do. And if you do wring your hands, you pray. And when you pray the wrong thing, what does uh, Romans 8, 26 and 27 say? The Holy Spirit intercedes for you. I'm going to talk about that in detail later. And the Holy Spirit brings transformation. I just love seeing a new believer come to faith in Christ and seeing their lives begin to change. And, and especially when you're first in Christ, there's all these just radical changes that happen. It kind of slows down over time because, the, because you've knocked off the big corners, um, but you begin to see that just glorious change. So the Spirit and the New Covenant ministry of, are, are just intertwined. You can't get away from it. What about Regeneration. We've talked about this a lot, so I'm not going to belabor the point. The new birth is by the Spirit. John 3, you cannot be born of the Spirit unless the Spirit makes you born again. Um, Jesus said that, you, that unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Um, born of water, what does this mean? Uh, there's an interpretive issue here. Most people take it as uh, unless you were born of water, like when your mother's water broke, and born of the Spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Why would Jesus say, uh, in order to become a Christian, you have to be born first? That makes no sense whatsoever. This, he is speaking to Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. And what is he referring to? He's referring to the Old Testament idea of cleansing of sin. That you are cleansed of sin, regenerated by the Spirit. This is exactly what Titus 3, 5 says. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, there's the symbol of water and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was referring to Ezekiel 36, 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And of course, conviction of sin comes by the Spirit. John 16, 8, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I've seen this countless times right over here at our cross. I'm someone who has sat in the back with his arms crossed and a little bit suspicious, maybe even mad. And yet, for some reason, they keep coming back. I love asking unbelievers, why do you keep coming back to church? I don't know. I just feel like I have to. It's kind of like picking a scab. It's painful, but I got to keep coming to it. And then one day you see them at the cross with their heads bowed and desperate to come to faith. Why is that? Because the Spirit convicts of sin. Let's do a couple more. The inner witness and illumination of the Spirit. He is the witness to the Scripture. He is the influence by which the Spirit persuades the sinner that the Word of God is true. And let me talk about this just for a second. 
um, some would say, well, that's a, uh, that's a circular argument. You can't say that the word of God is true because the spirit of God in you told you it's true. That's, that's circular reasoning. Uh, yeah, it might be in any other context, but who better than God himself to tell you that what he wrote is true? Where, how much higher are you going to go? Well, I read an article by a scholar that says that the word of God is true. Well, who cares about him? How do you know the Bible is true? I love the, the new believers when I talk to them and they're all bloodshot eyes at one guy. I, I remember a couple of years ago, his eyes are all bloodshot on a Sunday morning. Well, what happened to you? Oh man, I've been up all night reading the Bible. Oh, why are you doing that? I don't know. I think I got saved. And the word of God suddenly just explodes off the pages of the Bible. Our key text is 1 Corinthians 2 that tells us that you cannot understand the word of God without the spirit of God. It doesn't mean that you, you, can read the, you can't read the Bible and make out the words or even understand the concepts. It means that the truth of it will not impact you and won't do anything to you, won't change you unless the spirit does this. The spirit also illumines the scriptures, sometimes called the doctrine of illumination. It doesn't mean that the spirit is ensuring right interpretation uh the spirit helps us as we study um a, a, I, I remember one pastor saying in the charismatic church uh, i have the doctrine of illumination i don't need to study the word so you just open the bible and start making stuff up and the spirit of god if he were to speak out loud would say how about you study a little first and then i'll help you so it doesn't ensure right interpretation but this but the spirit helps us what the doctrine of illumination says, though, is that the word of God ministers to my heart, that it, it, that it explodes in my heart and in my mind, that he's active as we encounter the scripture. God doesn't say, well, I hope you get it when you read your Bible. No, God says, I'm going to help you get it and I'm going to teach you. He's leading you to understand the revelation that's already there. And then finally, we have the sealing of the spirit. I gave you a bunch of texts there. The sealing of the Spirit is that which promises that the Spirit of God acts as a down payment, as a pledge, as a guarantee. If the Spirit of God is going to be with you forever and ever and ever, you can't go to hell. Does that make sense? So that's what the guarantee is, that you've been given a down payment. And if we could be a little bit, have a little bit of freedom here, um, the Spirit of God, one person of the Trinity, is with you always, ensuring that someday you will see God the Son and God the Father because the Spirit of God won't be separated from himself, so to speak. Well, next time we'll look at the baptism of the Spirit, but if you take some good notes today, uh, later on, you'll get that anyway. So it's the weirdest thing how this turned out all at the same time. I take that as the Lord's uh, graciousness, so... Um, let's pray, and then I'll take a minute or two for questions in, uh, if you don't need to go. Thank you, Lord, for this first uh, installment here of pneumatology. We love the Holy Spirit, and we pray, Lord, to remember that He is so comforting and He is our help. Thank you for this time we've had. Amen.